Impact on Jupiter with Liz Guzman, Tim O'Brien, Mark Pover and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, September 2012, Extra Edition. Welcome to the Jobcast. Joining me in the studio today are Liz and Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we have our final NAM interview with Professor Joss Bland Hawthorne. Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, Mark talks to Eddie Blackhurst in this month's Job Bite. For this month's Job Bite, I'm with Eddie Blackhurst, who's a radio engineer, and I'm actually out at Jodrell Bank in one of the clean rooms, which I have to say I've never been in before. But a lot of um, rather special stuff goes on in here, doesn't it, Eddie? Yes. Hi, Mark. A lot of people probably won't know this, but the room that we're in now, just a few years ago, we built a suite of low-noise amplifiers used for a satellite called Planck. And it's comprised of some of the lowest-noise amplifiers that have ever been produced. And it's taking some of the finest radio astronomy data at the frequencies that it's designed to work at that have ever been taken. And the bits were made here? The bits workshop. were all made here, yeah, on site here at Jodrell Bank. The, the bodies that the amplifiers were made out of were machined in a mechanical workshop based here. And I did all of the assembly of the amplifiers. I did the RF testing, the radio testing, tuning and characterization. The amazing part about these amplifiers is that they're designed to work at 20 Kelvin, so some minus 250 degrees centigrade, and they're actually running at those temperatures out in space. The uh, most important thing about radio astronomy receivers is to keep the noise temperature of the receiver as low as possible, because some of the signals that we're trying to detect effectively are so weak that background noise generated within the receiver itself would swamp those signals out effectively. So the way we do that is physically cooling down the, the amplifiers in what's known as a dewer, which is effectively like a, a super fridge, if you like. Actually producing an amplifier that works at room temperatures, not really that difficult. But to actually get one to work at 20 Kelvin is extremely difficult because the device parameters, the transistor parameters change as you cool, and um, performance characteristics of other components vary as well. When you get an amplifier that's not working properly when it's physically cooled, you then have to come up with a hypothesis as to how to repair it, alter it at room temperature, and then try and cool it again. Well, the other thing with Planck was everything had to be of a flight grade effectively, so all of the components had to come with qualification. They had to all be certified suitable for flight use. We had to have very well-defined procedures to do assembly. And everything, everything, even the uh, thermal characteristics of the room that we did the assembly in here in the clean room, all had to be fully documented. So it was no mean feat and testament to, to the skill of the staff here at Jodrell and at other establishments that were also involved with Planck is the... Uh, Planck satellite has now been running for several years and is taking really good data. Presumably everything had to be small. I mean, I notice we've got a microscope here and if you're launching something into space, it's got to be as light as possible, I guess, that consideration as well. Yes, absolutely. The components that we use are absolutely minute. 
When I mention a transistor, everyone thinks of a device that's quite large that you can pick up with your fingers and move about. But to us, a microwave transistor measures less than half a millimetre across. You're looking at a device which is about 0.4 millimetres wide and I have to put gold wires onto these transistors, bond wires we call them, uh, which affect the tuning of the amplifier and they are actually finer than a strand of human hair and those are all put on by hand. Oh, wow. Hence the need for the microscope. Yes, and a steady hand. A very, very steady <laughs> hand. You, you can't have a bad day when you're putting wires onto these transistors. You've got to be really relaxed and really calm. One of the things that we did to, to keep the, the weight down of Planck was um, we machined the amplifier bodies out of aluminium to keep, keep the overall weight down. Typically, we like to use brass because it's easy to machine and it, it, it handles quite nicely. We're now currently building a, a suite of amplifiers or, or completing a suite of amplifiers for E-Merlin, which are working at C-band. For those who don't know what C-band is, it's 4 to 8 gigahertz. And that's quite high then for ground-based radio observations. It's, it's fairly high, but it, it works well with the E-Merlin network. Methanol is the thing that's observed. So then the E-Merlin network is the network of telescopes operated from Jodrell Bank, which now it's E because of the optical fibres connecting them. So obviously the, the, the improvements are still continuing with the production of these new amplifiers. Yes, yeah. We're making refinements all the time to try and improve things. But we're getting some very, very good performance. And just shortly from now, I'll uh, fit one of these amplifiers into the test duo that I've located next door in our RF test facility. And overnight tonight, we'll get that cold. We'll get it down to, to 20 Kelvin physical and test the noise properties. Right. Well, maybe we should go in there and have a look at how you actually cool these things down. Yeah, no problem. Let's have a go. Okay, so now we're here. We're about to cool one of the amplifiers down. I'm sort of looking at a silvery box. It's about maybe 40 centimetres each side. And then inside it, there's one of the amplifiers sort of gold brick a few centimetres across and it's attached to some wires so how are we how are we going to cool that down now yes we've just put uh, one of the amplifiers that we we're looking at in the clean room a few minutes ago into our test chamber or test dewer the amplifier is bolted to to a metal plate within the dewer and that plate is actually cooled down to 20 kelvin physical you can see a variety of different uh, cables inside the dewer. We've got a uh, bias cable which is taking the voltages and, and current required by the amplifier to bias it. Um, we also have RF connectors which uh, allow us to uh, test, test the amplifier's RF performance. And the actual dewer itself, the way it works, is, is really quite uh, quite nice. It's effectively like your domestic flask that you would have your coffee in effectively but it's coupled with a a chiller or a cooling system so what we do is we feed helium into a, a thing called a displacer which is is bolted to the bottom of the cryostat the dewer so we feed uh, gaseous helium in at about 300 pounds per square inch within this displacer we have a piston which is driven by a motor and the piston allows the gas in at about 300 pounds per square inch and as the piston moves up 
it reduces that pressure down to about 60 pounds per square inch and returns it to the compressor to be recompressed and it's that expansion of gas that uh, that is used to 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 cool the amplifier down to to 20 kelvin physical it's like spraying an aerosol then it suddenly you expand the volume and it gets colder that's that's pretty much identical to, uh, to, to to how it works. Another thing that we have to do, though, the inside of the Dewar um, has to have all of the air pumped out. And the reason for this is air is uh, quite a good conductor of heat. So if we have any, any air effectively left in the Dewar, um, it will conduct heat into the amplifier from the outside world. And we won't be able to, to, to get the, the device as cold as we want to. Um, the other problem, if we have any air left in the dewer, is um, we will end up with dew initially coating the amplifier as it gets cold, and at some point this this will actually freeze, which we, we don't want, obviously because if we've got dew on the outside of the amplifier, we have it on the inside, and that could cause damage, so we have to, to pump the air out as well. Um, this actual dewer, out of interest, is the uh, the actual dewer that we use to test all of the Planck flight amplifiers. So it's done some sterling work in the past, and it's still <laughs> continuing to do so it now. Works. So right now we've got um, uh, an amplifier for E-Merlin hooked up to it, but just outside of the dewer you've got one of the, the actual Planck prototype amplifiers, is it? Yes. We'll try and, we'll try and describe what it is. I mean, it, it's a lot lighter, as you were saying, than one of the Merlin amplifiers because it had to be to, to get on the spacecraft and you're saying it's made of aluminium it's sort of gold coloured it looks to me a bit like a big Lego brick it's got some wires sticking out and a bit of circuitry in it so if we imagine that's going up in the Planck spacecraft and what they're doing there is observing the cosmic microwave background and then this has got to amplify those very very weak signals how, how is it so small? it's so compact <laughs> Well, obviously, for, for, for the flight hardware, we had to, to manufacture things um, as compact as possible because not only is, is, is mass an issue, but uh, also size is an issue as well. I mean, the weight of this thing must only weigh 100 grams or certainly not much more than that, I wouldn't have thought. The thing I always find amazing is the, the all-up weight of the Ariane 5 that carried Planck weighed some 770 tonnes at launch. <laughs> and you look at this amplifier and you think, there's no weight there at all. <laughs> there's but, so much uh, fuel they have to carry in there, so you've got to keep the actual useful components down to as lighter, a lighter weight as possible. Yeah, it keeps costs, launch costs down. But interestingly, we're testing an E-Merlin amplifier in this Dewar, and that's designed to work from 4 to 8 gigahertz in the C-band. Now, this Planck amplifier here, this, this uh, pre-production prototype effectively, is designed to work at 44 gigahertz, which is quite substantially higher in frequency. The actual, if you compare both amplifiers side by side, um, there's, there's quite a difference in their internal architecture. Uh, for example, the circuit boards that carry the microwaves in the Planck amplifier are fitted into channels which are, well, 30 thousandths of an inch wide, you know, and all those circuit boards are made by hand, so very steady hand came in. Yeah. By comparison, the C-band amplifier that we're about to test, the channel which the, the circuit boards carrying the microwaves in there, the, the width of the channel that the circuit boards sit in, is probably on the order of... Uh, getting on towards a centimetre wide. So there's quite a substantial difference in, in the way they're assembled and the way they're designed effectively. Yeah, I should also mention one of the things that you just showed me as we left the workshop was, was one of the, 
strands of gold that you used to coat the wires. And it was like a little strand of gold hair, very, very fine sort of gold hair. That's one of the, the, the bond wires, is it? Those are actually, the, the wires that we use are 0.7 thousandths of an inch in diameter, which is actually finer than human hair. But for Planck, the transistors used in the, the amplifiers there have pads on them which are so small that even those wires were too thick. So we had to use 0.5 thousandths of an inch diameter wire, which is incredibly difficult to work with. <laughs> I just think one of the most nerve-wracking things about about this must be that, at least with the E-Merlin um, amplifiers, you've got the luxury of being able to take them back out and fix them if they're broken. But these plank ones, I mean, you never get to touch them again. They've got to work. It was suggested by one of my superiors that um, if anything went wrong, I would be issued with a one-way ticket on an Ariane 5. <laughs> but we, we won't go any further on that one. <laughs> well, it's, it all seems to be really successful. And actually, it's a really exciting thing to be involved in because it... Ultimately, it's going to give a, a better constraint on the variations in the cosmic microwave background. It's going to help people to understand the, the history of the universe, how much dark energy there might be, all that sort of thing. And these amplifiers are at the heart of it. I can't wait to see some of those papers, to be quite honest. I mean, the whole team, not just myself, put a considerable amount of effort in. And I think and I hope we will be rewarded by, by some really good data. I look forward to seeing the papers. Okay, well, maybe for the last thing, um, I understand this is going to be quite noisy. Should we fire up the uh, the cryostat? Yeah, sure, no problem. All right, so we're ready to switch on. Let's hear what it sounds like. Yeah, you ready? I'll just switch the vacuum pump on to take the air out, so you'll hear that starting to run. Here we go. There we go. So the vacuum in the Dewar chamber now is, is reducing as the air's been sucked out uh-huh. and the next thing to do now is to turn on the cryogenic pump or the displacer in this case so just connect that and you should hear the chugging sound as the helium's been allowed in oh yeah so the chamber you can hear it ex- ex- expanding the helium <laughs> yeah very therapeutic so <laughs> not good to listen to for too long and tend to go very sleepy with it but uh, <laughs> There we go. Yeah, so you hear it winding up now. You can hear the turbo pump winding up now. That'll drop the vacuum, uh, uh, drop the pressure in the chamber right down, and you know, produce very good vacuum. Um, and you can see here on this temperature monitor unit that the temperature is starting to to go down slowly. Oh, yeah, there it goes. So we've got it there in in Kelvin. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's about room temperature at the moment. How long does it take to get to get right down to twenty Kelvin? Uh, this Jew, you're looking at probably, I don't know, six to eight hours to get it down to uh, twenty Kelvin physical. Okay. So it's not not too bad. And once it gets that cold, we can uh, switch the vacuum pump off, close the close the tap effectively on the Dewar to prevent air getting back in. We can switch a vacuum pump off then, and it will maintain its vacuum because of its physical temperature. And then by min- min- minimising the temperature, that reduces the thermal noise as much as as much as you can. Then. Yes, it reduces the thermal noise of the amplifier to an absolute minimum. Um, thermal noise is also known as Johnson noise. And we measure that with this rack of test equipment just immediately in front of you, which is the same test set that we used for for doing plank on. Right. So all those all those plank amplifiers have been tested on this equipment. Yes. And now they're doing their job. Uh, out in space. Yes, yeah. And the test set's still doing a good job for E. Merlin. 
yes, yeah, very, very exciting to think that all the equipment that's that's now going to be used by Planck to to get better constraints on the history of the universe and the content of the universe was all tested here. That's that's really fantastic to see. Thanks very much for the interview. Thanks for that, Mark. And in our final NAM interview, Professor Joss Bland Hawthorne told Mark about the interplay between baryonic and dark matter in galaxy formation. Professor Joss Bland Hawthorne from the University of Sydney has been one of our plenary speakers this week and he's been talking about the um, large-scale environment of galaxies. And I understand you're particularly interested in, in the gas and the baryonic matter and how that's, that's come to be in galaxies. Yes, that's right. So the universe began with dark matter and what we call baryons. Baryons are just particles uh, like electrons and protons um, that make up atoms. And uh, the universe began with a certain amount of dark matter, a certain amount of baryons. And uh, over billions of years, the dark matter began to clump into structures. We call those halos, dark matter halos. And then somewhere in this process, the gas began to fall in. And when the gas falls in, it starts to cool and it forms stars. So that's what we end up with today. We, if you look around today, you see galaxies in all directions. We live in a big galaxy. Um, and our own galaxy is made up of gas that's formed stars. It just so happens that we live around one of those stars. Um, and of course, we're surrounded by a gigantic dark matter halo. So my lecture was about that relationship between dark matter and gas, or more generically baryons, since uh, the Big Bang. So um, this is becoming a very exciting topic. Um, we've known about that dark matter exists for 70 or 80 years. Uh, we don't actually see dark matter, we just infer its presence through gravity. So, for example, if you see something moving around in a circular orbit and there's nothing in the center of that orbit, you infer there must be something holding onto it. Um, and in this case, it would be a black hole or it would be dark matter. So, um, as we look around the universe, we infer the presence of dark matter all over the place. Dark matter is in clusters of galaxies. There's dark matter in groups of galaxies. There's great sheets of dark matter. There's great filaments of dark matter. Um, and we don't, as I say, we don't see it, but what we do have are very sophisticated numerical simulations um, that show how the universe evolves in the presence of dark matter and how you end up with all the structure that we, um, that we infer from the universe around us. But what's not clear is the relationship of the gas to that dark matter. The dark matter is six times more prevalent, more common by mass, throughout the universe, so the dark matter dominates how these things happen. Um, and somehow the gas falls into dark matter, um, and this starts very early indeed. So even within, say, a hundred million years of the Big Bang, remember the universe is almost 14 billion years old, so within the first hundred million years, um, dark matter began to form these small clumps and then the gas fell in and formed the first stars. The reason we know that is because as we look to very high redshifts, as we look deep into the universe, we find that the, the gas, the cold gas that should be there, has been mostly uh, turned into warm gas by radiation. And the only way we can see to do that is by there having been a first generation uh, of stars. 
We also see that there are metals. Everywhere you look, you see carbon, you see silicon, sulfur in the very high redshift universe. The only way to get those metals is from the centers of stars. Those metals were not produced by the Big Bang. So there must have been an early phase in the universe when dark matter formed clumps, gas fell in, produced these very high mass stars, which then warmed up the early gas to make it relatively invisible to us, so we could see through it, and also produced metals that enriched that gas in the high redshift universe. So we have an inkling of what happened very early on, but what we're not, what's not at all clear is what happened next. Dark matter carried on clumping together, more and more dark matter would fall together, and galaxies, dark matter galaxies would become bigger and bigger and bigger, and presumably as the gravity got stronger and stronger, more and more gas was able to fall into these uh, dark matter halos. Uh, but the sequence of events from the Big Bang to the present time is, as far as we can tell, uh, really very complex indeed. And at the moment, we're struggling with computer simulations to get the dark matter right. We think we have a dark matter universe models that look right. We don't know for sure because we can't see dark matter, only infer its presence. But what we are now trying to do is to install gas into these simulations. But gas physics is very complicated, and we're not at all convinced that our simulations of how gas falls into dark matter are correct. Because the, the dark matter is just purely gravity. It does matter. It's purely gravity. It just pulls the gas in. And you need to have the gas fall in because the gas must fall in to form stars. One thing we're sure of is that you ne never get stars forming outside of dark matter. You don't get a gas cloud and stars in the middle of it. We've never found one like that ever. The only stars we ever see are associated with gas that fell into dark matter. So the dark, the dark matter is key to the accretion of sufficient mass to then produce stars. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, so there's a real mystery there. And rather than just running computer simulations, they get more and more sophisticated. Uh, another approach is to look out in the universe with bigger and bigger telescopes and learn more about what there is to be found out about the universe, learn more about the gas, uh, learn more about stars in general. But you can also go deep into the universe. You can look back in time. Um, light has this remarkable property that it carries information. Light is also a constant speed. So um, if you look nearby in the universe, you learn about things now. But if you look deep into the universe, the light has been traveling so long that, in fact, you're learning about something which happened a very long time ago. So using, say, the Hubble Space Telescope, we can look back in deep space and learn about the early universe, or even big ground-based telescopes like the Keck Telescope. We can look out into space and look back to the, to the early universe. Uh, and we also try to compare what we learn from that uh, with simulations of the early universe. So what my talk was about, really, was about how this may have happened the sequence of events in which gas would fall into the dark matter and form stars. What's interesting about that in particular is that we know the, the universe by mass has about 16% um, of what we would call baryons. And the trouble is we only see a fraction of that. Maybe we only see, of that 16%, maybe we only see a quarter of it. Maybe we only see a tenth of it depends who you believe. So the, the, so the question is, why don't we see the remainder of these baryons? Where are they? They're seemingly invisible uh, throughout the universe, although I might say that people are beginning to claim to find this stuff. And so my talk was about trying to explain the galaxies we see today 
at the same time trying to explain why so much of the baryons never fell in and, and were rendered, in, rendered invisible uh, throughout the universe. So how do we infer that some of those baryons re- really are baryons if we can't see them? How do you separate them from the dark matter? Yes, so in fact it's, it's very difficult because what we've now realized is these baryons that are missing from galaxies, the vast majority of them in fact, these baryons are at temperatures like 100,000 degrees. And at 100,000 degrees, that gas um, emits in a part of the spectrum what's called the extreme ultraviolet, uh, which is extremely difficult to detect directly. In fact, um, extreme ultraviolet emission, direct emission, is, uh, is almost impossible, really. What you see is you see the gas in absorption. What that means is if you look towards a distant quasar, you don't look for lines that peak up in the spectrum. You look for lines that are in absorption, where the quasar's light has been, some of the light has been taken away, and you see a, a dip in the spectrum. And we see lots of these little dips in quasar spectra. We just use the quasar as a background light source coming through the universe. And these little dips tell us about the presence of this warm, invisible gas. So, I mean, we infer, again, we infer it's there, but we don't really see it directly. So the idea is that there's a lot of warm gas around galaxies, not in galaxies, around groups and around clusters of galaxies. Uh, and my, what, I, what I raised was the issue of whether this gas is in fact distributed on much larger scales than just uh, around the galaxies that we see. And that this gas has a certain motion, it in fact is streaming towards galaxies in these bizarre thin streams or filaments we call them. And what's interesting about that is we've never actually seen these streams or filaments, uh, but people do generally believe that's how gas gets into galaxies. But that's purely based on computer models. It's never been seen directly. So part of my talk was devoted to trying to understand why you don't see these uh, filaments so easily today. And in fact, what you'd have to do to actually find these, uh, these filaments. Or in fact, that's the wrong picture. Filaments may be not the way, or fingers of gas may be not the way this stuff gets in. It may be, in fact, that in many cases the gas never got into galaxies. Or in some other cases the gas got in and then was ejected. Is it simply too hot to, um, to collapse in? That's, that's one idea. Um, although people think that if the gas does get hot, it will eventually cool. So you should see gas raining in from a dark halo. A, sort of a, a dark halo full of warm, hot gas. It cools and then floods in. But um, my work has shown over the years that you cannot associate that picture with anything you see today. Like cold clouds around the galaxy, like the high-velocity clouds, these have nothing to do with uh, hot accretion cooling down and giving you rain onto the galaxy. So something else is going on. So my talk uh, focused on those sorts of issues, like where is this gas? Maybe the gas in some cases came in and was ejected as warm gas. In other cases, the gas stayed warm and never got it in the first place. Um, and I basically build up a picture of, of what this is telling us about the way galaxies form. And uh, in time, we'll be able to see if, if my ideas are, are correct or not. So what sort of instrumentation is now being uh, developed or used to try and test this stuff out? You've asked the right person about this. <clears throat> so I mentioned before that the extreme ultraviolet emission was essentially invisible. Well, I'm working with my team in Australia. We build instruments. 
Um, and we also work with NASA, with various colleagues, and we've been thinking about a balloon experiment that we could launch next year that would have some special technology, photonic technology, that would allow us to see this extreme ultraviolet mission directly. I mean, there are other people who've, who've tried to do this. Uh, have a, uh, a very impressive colleague at Caltech called Chris Martin. He has looked at doing this uh, with a, an experiment he calls Fireball um, on a balloon, uh, maybe even on a satellite. I'm not sure where he's got with that, but we are thinking about a balloon first and a satellite later. And my group already has a small satellite that's been built and we intend to launch next year. But we will start with a bigger experiment on a balloon that we'll launch with NASA from Australia. And we'll try to detect this ultraviolet emission directly. Because you really have to get above the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere absorbs ultraviolet. But is it also then, even when you get above the Earth's atmosphere, do you find most of it's been extinguished on its way? That's here? a very good question. So the galaxy itself also absorbs ultraviolet light. Uh, but there are, in fact, directions all over the sky where the absorption from the galaxy is low. So we basically look in those windows where the, we know that the ultraviolet absorption is lower than, than other places. Uh, and it just turns out there happens to be a lot of holes in the, in the, in the medium of the gas of our galaxy where you can see through to the distant universe. So I'm quite confident about that because we have a new approach to detecting ultraviolet Emission directly. I was going to ask because that, um, we should probably mention there was a, there was an RAS medal awarded to you related to instrumentation. So presumably it's quite novel what you're doing. Yeah. So yes, I was awarded before my plenary talk. I was awarded the Jackson Wilt Medal for um, experimental astrophysics, and that medal really recognises effort by myself and by my colleagues. Really, to be fair, the medal was given to me, but I have a number of colleagues who've been tremendously uh, helpful over the years. In Australia and uh, what we have done is to explore the use of um, photonics. Um, optics is where you shine light through lenses and you reflect off mirrors. Uh, photonics is when you shine light through materials that can bend and flex. One of my colleagues refers to photonics as m the science of molding the flow of light, which I like. Okay. <laughs> molding the flow of light. So um, there's actually a review article that I wrote coming out in Physics Today this issue, May, the May issue of 2012. You can read about this work. So the idea of using photonics to guide light and split up light and process light is not entirely new. Astronomers have used fibers for decades to take light from stars or galaxies and bring them together onto the instrument. Um, but we've gone much, much further than that. You know, we use laser combs, which are frequency combs. Uh, we use what are called ring resonators optical circulators, array waveguides, fiberback gratings. Uh, there are so many technologies that we're exploring. Vortex coronagraphs. Uh, and I, I could just keep going on and on. We've actually invented a device which has had a major impact in experimental physics called a photonic lantern. This is where you take a normal fiber, a multi-mode fiber, where light can go through it in many different ways. But what it does is convert all that light into, into single-mode output. Uh, and that's, of course, what telecom uses to transmit signals all around the world into TV sets, telephone lines, and so on. Um, so if you want to tap into telecom technology to do light processing, you need to go from multi-mode signal, where light can move around in many different ways, to a single-mode uh, propagation, where light can only move in one direction. It's all about increasing the sensitivity, then, is it? It, it is indeed, yes. So we're able to break down multi-mode light into single-mode outputs, and these single-mode outputs feed into... Uh, conventional telecom devices or devices that I develop in my own lab. So we've taken photonics in astronomy to a new level 
And we've also taken photonics in space to a new level because we, we have instruments we're building for space and on balloons, which are entirely made up of photonic components. So uh, this field is known as astrophotonics, but others similarly refer to it as space photonics. So uh, it's become a very uh, exciting new field because it gives us entirely new ways uh, of looking at astro astronomical instrumentation. So for example, a typical spectrograph today that wants to work at extremely high spectral sampling resolution, these instruments are sort of six meters in size or larger. We can reduce that entire instrument down to something which is size of, the size of a shoebox. Okay. Um, and this will happen, I think, more and more in the future. So in other words, our instruments now are independent of the telescope or the application. They're just very small boxes. So it sounds too good to be true, and it is. The one thing that we're missing right now are detectors that are specialized for our micro-spectrographs, our little spectrographs. And we are now engaged in trying to develop detectors which are specific to our kinds of little instruments. Once those detectors are, are made, are finished and made, hopefully in a couple of years, then our little boxes will be as powerful as any six-meter telescope instrument in the world. Wow. That probably leads right into the next question I was going to ask. Do you see the, then these being used a lot on the next generation of telescopes or even the current generation of telescopes? Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, at the moment, instruments scale with the telescope. So, for example, a two-meter telescope might have an instrument which measures one meter in length. Now, two meters means the, uh, the mirror of the telescope is two meters wide. And the instrument might be two, uh, one meter in length. If you go to a four-meter telescope, this instrument now might be two meters in length. If you go to a 10-meter telescope, that instrument now is like uh, five meters in length. Um, that's just a very rough scaling at a particular sort of performance. Um, and what I've shown in papers since 2006, 2007, is if you use photonics, the instrument can be always kept small. The size of a shoebox. In fact, one of the papers says, shoebox spectrograph, one size fits all. <laughs> I think is the title of the paper. Um, so now, basically what we've done is to, is to separate how instruments grow uh, from how telescopes grow. Which is very exciting because it means on the ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, which are going to be 30, 40 meters in diameter at most, you'd expect instruments to be enormous. I don't know, mm. say 20 meters in length or 10. Depends on what you're trying to do. Of course, there'll be less than that, 6 meters or so. Um, but what we've shown is that the same box, the same shoebox concept should work equally well on a 30 meter telescope. But we are waiting for certain kinds of detectors to be to be to be manufactured before we yeah. really pull this off. Yeah. And then, um, although we don't always like to think about the cost, is this something that's going to then ultimately be more cost effective than the very large instruments? The, yes. The at the moment it's not quite as cheap as we'd like. Uh, but what we're really hoping is that industry will pick up. So I have patents on some of this stuff, uh, which was supposed to encourage industry um, to step up and engage us. And that's now begun to happen. We've got sort of Canadian companies, uh, that in particular medical companies, that are working with us to make photonic instruments commercially. So if that happens, and it all washes through and everything works out in the way that uh, I anticipate, um, then the cost should come down uh, enormously. So then, let's say that each shoebox allows 
two or three or four fibers, maybe ten fibers to come into it. And let's say you wanted to have a thousand fibers on the sky, then you would essentially buy a hundred shoe boxes, mm. which would pack together in a very small volume. Um, so that's sort of a modular approach to building instruments, and it could be very inexpensive if, if industry comes to our aid. All right, well, some, some very exciting future prospects there. Um, we're a bit low on photons right now, so maybe yes, we should okay. wrap up the interview there. Right, the lights have gone out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those things that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds are ends. Uh, first of all, there's been an apparent impact on Jupiter on September 10th, which is quite exciting because the people who witnessed it, were observed it, were amateur astronomers. Um, the first person to note it was Dan Peterson um, from Wisconsin. He was observing it and he posted on a forum and another amateur astronomer, George Hall, picked up on this, that there had been some sort of impact on Jupiter and looked back over some videos that he'd taken with his telescope and and it showed up in the videos and these are actually now available online. Um, people aren't sure exactly what's hit the planet or whether it's going to leave a scar like um, Shoemaker-Levy uh, comet did. But it's it's pretty exciting because these were just amateur astronomers out observing. And yeah, they they witnessed something and now people are going to be observing the planet, see if there's been any, any further evidence of it. They really struck it lucky. It's good to know that some people are, are looking all the time. Yeah, because I mean, some of these will happen and you won't, we won't know that they'll have happened because people haven't been observing it at the right time. How often have they been seen to happen? Is this like the first one? I believe there have been about four since 2009 um, that have visible um, impacts on Jupiter. So, yeah, I mean, they happen fairly regularly. It's quite often. It's funny we don't know about these things before they hit Jupiter, but I guess Jupiter's quite far away. Those objects before they hit are probably quite dim. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't detect them. And it's nice that Jupiter's there vacuum cleaning all those <laughs> things up because it's said that the gravity of Jupiter actually helps to draw in small objects that might otherwise menace the Earth. Our little protector, rather large protector yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah, it's not that little, right? It's our big brother, I think. <laughs> awesome. So, well, from from a very big planet that protects us to another very small astronomical object that kind of protects us as well is the Moon. But now what I'm going to talk about is a possible lift to the moon. So when I found this, I was really excited that people are trying to build a lift, literally a lift to the moon. That's an elevator for anyone that's in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry. Okay, and so yeah, it's called the Lunar Space Elevator. But don't get too excited because it might not happen. So <laughs> I don't I don't keep you hopes up. This whole idea was from Yuri Arsutanov um, back in the 50s. Um, but this was news at the end of August because apparently they had the first um, kind of workshop or meeting when they actually went through analyzing how are they going to do it and is it going to work and how is it going to happen. So, right, how is it going to work is the whole thing. There's a station that you're going to send and this station has to stay in a geostationary point. Um, there's there's two different points that you can put it. It's the Lagrangian point one and Lagrangian point two, which one is on the side of the Earth, between Earth and the Moon, and the other one is on the far side of the Moon. So depending on where you put it, this thing is, will stay because you know, this is the stable uh, point. And then from there, you will release a cable 
and that cable will go through the moon and then you will uh, fix so you fix the ca the cable to the moon and then for this cable to be stable you have to have another cable to, and you have to put a counterweight some of the issues with this thing is the counterweight actually that has to be quite heavy and the main issue at the moment is the cable so the cable has to be really really strong and one of the main things at the moment because they were saying that most of the instruments and most of the technology is ready now so we can start building it the only thing that is missing is the very strong cable which is quite important right so to give you an idea how strong how um strong the cable has to be so i mentioned that the the russian person that did this calculation and wanted to put this lift to the moon um is called yuri so there's a no unofficial units called mega yuris <laughs> so steel has 0.5 mega yuris so that's the strength of steel the strongest um material that we have available at the moment is called silen and that has 3.9 mega yuris which is pretty awesome but apparently the cable that we need to go and build the build the lift has to be a, between 30 and 100 mega yuris so that's about an order of magnitude <laughs> stronger than what we have now um so yeah that that's probably a tough thing to make um but there has been some possible things that they can use one of them is carbon nanotubes they said they could be a good candidate but at the moment it's quite tough to make to manufacture it and another is boron nitride um, nanotubes and uh, apparently they offer 70 percent of the theoretical strength of carbon nanotubes but they might be easier to manufacture and they they said that this will be built by 2050 but they said that even um, even if it's not built by then, this whole technology and all these um, very strong cables that they will probably build, they will help all the way on like the process of building this thing because they could be used for um, lighter, more fuel efficient automobiles, airplanes, boats, and even spacecraft. Yeah, nanotubes are quite a big research topic, aren't they? Sort of very thin but very rigid. Yeah. Um, structures which could be used in all sorts of things yeah yeah exactly and the other thing that they wanted to have kind of a, a space um, station on the moon is because if you have a station on the moon then it's real it's well it's not really easy but it's easier to go to mars so that's another point um, that they wanted to have a station on the moon to go to mars and then have a station in mars so yeah we're kind of colonizing solar system <laughs> But yeah, it would be quite cool, right, to have a lift to the moon. Yeah. It's, it's like... something that seems so impossible, but actually yeah. it seems like it's now it's it's a serious idea. Uh, hopefully. It'd be quite cool. It's like, I'm going to go for breakfast to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> How many floors up is that in your elevator? Yeah. <laughs> Floor a thousand and something. No, it'd be like millions, right? Oh, yeah. I don't even know. I mean, I'm imagining what it would be like. You've got there's Lagrangian point L2, which is like a point where the gravity is balanced between the Earth and the Moon. Yeah. So this thing would always be between the Earth and the Moon. And because the Moon is always showing the same face to us, that would work. Yeah. And then you can't attach it to the Earth because the Earth is spinning at a different rate. Yeah. So you have to. But you, get you will there get. Yeah, then... exactly. So you will get to the. 
the Lagrangian point, and from that you get a lift. Easy. Which, yeah, sounds <laughs> amazing, right? <laughs> so my odd end uh, is about Galaxy Zoo, which you might have heard of uh, a number of times, perhaps on the Jogcast before. It's a project where anybody can go onto a website called Galaxy Zoo and they can actually classify the shapes and properties of galaxies. Uh, and the reason is that surveys have been done of, of many, many galaxies, and it turns out that people are still better than computers at classifying them, which is useful for astronomers in building up statistics. So more than a million images have been classified by people so far in Galaxy Zoo in the last five years, and now there's another quarter of a million online just waiting for people like you to go and classify them. They come from two surveys. One is uh, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which uh, gives detailed images of galaxies in the local universe. And some of them come from the Candle Survey, which is part of the Hubble Space Telescope's work. And that looks much further into the universe at galaxies that are seen as they were much, much longer ago. And one of the really interesting things that they've done alongside this is they've recently put a tool on the website, which has actually existed for a while, but now it's on the Galaxy Zoo website for itself, which will take any message that you want to write and it will write it for you in galaxies. It's pretty cool. So a galaxy <laughs> font where every letter is a galaxy and it's a real picture of an actual funny shaped galaxy. Or you can get numbers and even punctuation marks as well as upper and lower case. I didn't know they'd gone on to punctuation and numbers and stuff. I'd written my name in it. And I've seen that. That's really cool. I think <laughs> so cool. no passage is complete without an exclamation mark at the end. So that's <laughs> that's what I tested out. Um, but the amazing thing is the person who made this, Dr. Stephen Bamford, uh, he actually created a computer program to go and look for galaxies that look like letters, which is kind of funny because normally you're using people to do this job. That's the whole point. But here it's like automated. And the result is that he's actually been able to turn up quite a few. So if you go in and put a message, you can click a button and say, show it me again, and it will give you the same message in different galaxies. That's so, pretty awesome. Like different galaxy handwriting. Exactly. Yeah. It's like your message in, not even in the stars, sort of in the in the galaxies, just in the universe. I mean, some of these are pretty funny shapes. I think some of them may be mergers. You can imagine like S is easy to do with a nice spiral. But things like T, I'm pretty sure are like galaxies smashing together or something like that but that's just a fun thing to kind of hook you in and if you like the look of those galaxies then you can just get classifying them and help that project along that's pretty cool i think i'm going to write my thesis in galaxy font <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure the examiners will love you for that well maybe just a title just a title although my thesis has nothing to do with galaxies Never mind. Never mind, it'll be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and now from citizen science to citizen questions, here are your questions answered by Dr. Tim O'Brien. So in this month we have three questions. Um, the first question from this week is from Nick Sanders, and he asks, um, I'm interested in matter falling into black holes. It has long been a problem for me to understand how matter ever crosses the event horizon. To an external observer... Matter will never cross the event of horizon, but just get closer and closer to it. To an observer falling into the black hole, and then he quotes, assuming they survive the spaghettification, which I quite liked, <laughs> wouldn't the black hole evaporate before they ever close the horizon? Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
So it's a good question, actually. Uh, and I think probably what what we should do is just remind people what a black hole is first, quickly. Yeah. Um, so it's basically an object um, where the force of gravity is so strong um, that as you approach it, the force of gravity is stronger and stronger and stronger. You get to a certain point where it's so strong that you couldn't possibly escape from it unless you were able to somehow travel faster than the speed of light. So obviously that's not possible. So basically as you approach a black hole, um, there's a there's a point or a you know point in space which you cross, which you can never get get back out from. That's that's called the event horizon. Um, now, uh, what he actually mentions is this this point about when we look at if we were to look at something falling towards a black hole, um, then there's this effect called gravitational time dilation, which basically means the the photons as they effectively as the photons are coming away from this object as it's falling in. Uh, we see, um, because of this gravitational redshift effect, we see the object slowing down. So from our view, we see this thing getting slower and slower and slower. And actually, it takes an infinite amount of time for an object to reach the event horizon, as seen by an external observer, as seen by us. So yeah, things, as far as we'd be concerned, things wouldn't actually, we wouldn't see them cross the event horizon. Mm -hmm. They sort of slow right down and effectively freeze on the event horizon. As it happens, it's actually impossible for us to see the event horizon because the photons that are coming from that point are, uh, are gravitationally redshifted to, to, to non-existence effectively. <laughs> They're stretched out so we could never see it. Um, but, um, that, that effect, that gravitational time dilation effect is real, um, first thing to say. I mean, it sounds like it could be just a mad idea, but, uh, uh, but actually clocks in a strong gravity field run slow. Um, and the way that the, the classic example of this in real life are GPS satellite navigation systems that you might have in your car, um, because the GPS satellites are orbiting the Earth. They're, they're well, much farther away from the Earth than, than we are sitting here on its surface. So they're in a weaker gravity field. So clocks, the atomic clocks on board those satellites run fast because they're in a weaker gravity field. So they actually run faster by about, um, well, it's 47 microseconds per day. Oh, wow. So if you were to compare a clock here on Earth with a com the clock on the satellite, they're actually running faster by 47 microseconds every day. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to ruin GPS if we didn't correct for it. Yeah. Um, so it's a real effect. Um, and yes, so that, that, that happens. We see this, this object slow down as it, as it approaches the event horizon. But from the object's point of view, yeah. it goes straight through. So the object doesn't feel itself slow down and freeze on the event horizon. It's only viewed from our perspective. Yeah. So the object just goes straight through the event horizon. And actually, then once it's through that point, it inexorably reaches the singularity at the middle assuming there's one there. So it goes straight into the middle of the black hole and that's it. There's no saving the actual object. Um, so in that sense, it's not a problem. So from their perspective, from that perspective of something falling in, the black hole can't evaporate um, before you fall and you will just go straight in. So there's, there's no problem there. And there was a little, you said you liked spaghettification. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I quite like that phrase. Or, yeah. yeah. Have you, you've heard of that, presumably? I've heard it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is this idea that people are stretched into spaghetti. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is actually, it's basically a tidal, a tidal effect. Yeah. So tides, what we call tidal forces, are basically the difference in the force of gravity across an object. Yeah. So for like the Earth and the Moon, it's the difference in the force of gravity from one side of the Moon to the other. Uh, sorry, one side of the Earth to the other due, due to the Moon. 
in the case of spaghettification, it's as you, as you sort of imagine falling in feet first. The force of gravity at your feet from the black hole could be significantly strong. bigger than it is at your head, yeah. and that would actually rip you apart. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that if you do the calculations, um, uh, when that happens um, depends on the size of the black hole, the mass of the black hole. So in some black holes, it could be that you'd actually get all the way through the event horizon before you get ripped apart. Okay. In other black holes, it could actually happen to you before you get near the event horizon. So it does wow. does does depend. Oh, cool. Okay. Brilliant. Perfect. So um, the second question is from Pet- Peter Ellinger. And he says, um, since obtaining a new telescope, it hardly stopped raining here in Sheffield. I've almost forgotten what the moon and the stars look like. I got to wondering what other observational techniques could I employ to do some observing while waiting for the clear skies to return. I came up with two options, which I liked advice on, please. So his option, option one is radar astronomy, and option two is radar imaging. And then he asked, will um, either of these work when it's raining? And what could I expect to get out of the kit by the the way of images. Yeah. Okay. So I sympathize. Yeah. <laughs> he lives in Sheffield. The weather's not much better over here in Manchester. So yeah. Um, so radio astronomy in that sense is useful uh, for when it's raining um, yeah. because we can do radio astronomy cer- certainly through the clouds. Otherwise, you know, Jodrell Bank, for example, wouldn't be here. We'd be, yeah. we'd be in, you know, in some exotic place on the top of a high mountain above the clouds. Um, and actually in terms of how much it affects it, well, it depends on exactly which bit of the spectrum you're looking at. So at low frequencies, so long wavelengths, so maybe wavelengths of like 20 centimetres, which are ones that we typically observe at, we're okay. We can see through the cloud. As you go to the shorter and shorter wavelengths, or equivalently the higher and higher frequencies, then the water vapour in the atmosphere has more of an effect. So yeah, you can get to a point where the rain kills you off, but sticking to the lower uh, the lower frequencies, the higher, the higher, longer wavelengths is helpful there. Um, his options, uh, he mentioned um, radar imaging. I think the answer to that is no, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, you can't do radar imaging as, a, as an amateur. Um, and the reason is, basically, it's generally illegal to transmit radio waves um, at any significant power. Okay. Um, so, of course, you know, loads of people use the radio spectrum. Our mobile phones transmit radio waves, of course, but they are very strictly regulated that they do it at a certain relatively weak level. Um, and loads of people use the spectrum for other things. Radar, airport radar are quite strong transmitters. The military radar um, use things. Atmo- uh, atmospheric radar, so looking at the weather. Mm-hmm. So there's all these uses of the spectrum. They're all very strongly regulated. Um, and if you wanted to do anything about transmitting radio waves, you'd have to get a license. Okay. You can do. You can get an amateur radio license, a radio ham, they call them. Um, and again, though, you are limited to certain powers. Now, in terms of radar imaging, um, the equivalent in astronomy would be, say, what's done with like the Arecibo mm-hmm. telescope. They have a really, really powerful radar. Of course, it's very carefully regulated. Can be dangerous, really, if you stood in the way of these things. It's microwave radio waves they're not not good for you so you have to be very careful about how they're used but they can basically send out these radar waves radio signals effectively bounce them off a planet like venus mars or whatever and map the surface of the planet by looking at the the echoes they receive um but because you're bouncing it off something so far away the power they need is high um, and that's why you can't really do it as an amateur the closest you can get is a um, moon bounce it's called so radio hams amateur radio people do 
um, the sort of more advanced ones at least, try out this technique of um, transmitting a radio signal towards the moon mm-hmm. and they actually catch the echo, they get the bounce off the moon. Wow. Um, that's a you know an interesting project to try. Yeah. But yeah, strongly regulated. So don't go building your own radio transmitter because <laughs> you'll be somebody will be coming around knocking on the door. Um, so uh, the the other option uh, mentions radio astronomy. Yeah. Um, and I, what I would do is I point point towards um, well, there's two basically two good groups of amateurs that do amateur radio astronomy. There's something called SARA S A R A, the Society of Amateur Radio Astronomers, which you'll find on the web. Um, there's also the British Astronomical Association, the BAA, Radio Astronomy Group, who are quite active as well. Um, and there are things you can do, um, and there's lot, there's a range of things. They've got ideas for projects on their websites, uh, and it goes all the way from, um, you know, perhaps even just using a small satellite dish like you have for TV and being able to detect the sun. I mean, you can actually pick up the, the radio emission from the sun with a with a little satellite dish. And there's interesting bits of physics you can even do with that in terms of understanding uh, the resolution of a radio telescope, for example. Yeah, in, in, in terms of looking at things a bit more distant, um, then, then you, there are some quite exciting things you can do with a dish maybe a few metres in diameter, so, so a bit bigger than you'd stick on the side of your house. Uh, but you can get one of those, you can have a receiver which... Uh, uh, basically does fast sampling, digitization of the, the radio signal, um, and you can actually measure the hydrogen line, the, 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 the radio emission coming from hydrogen atoms in space. You can actually see the spiral structure in the Milky Way, even with a small radio dish, and what is now relatively cheap electronics, you know, with a, with a PC at the back end. Um, so that's worth, worth looking into. Um, one of the other things you can do is meteor astronomy, so you can do, uh, uh, you can look at um, basically what happens is you tune a radio receiver to the frequency of a over-the-horizon TV or radio broadcast. So somebody's producing a TV signal somewhere. Um, you wouldn't be able to see it directly because it's round the world over the horizon from you. But basically, what happens is it as it goes up through the atmosphere, the signal they're broadcasting, and a meteor comes into the atmosphere. It leaves an ionized trail in the atmosphere and you get reflection off the trail okay, cool. so what yeah what you what you then receive is like a little echo a little burst of this this uh, that was this, this, yeah this transmission and so you can actually see meteors even when it's cloudy or, or even during the day you know when, when yeah. you wouldn't be able to see them visually so that's that's a possibility so so loads of ideas on their websites and i think i would just say imaging you mentioned imaging. Imaging in general is a bit of a challenge in radio astronomy. Uh, what you could try is using a single dish and scanning it, so measuring the strength of the signal in a given direction and doing a sort of raster scan across the sky. That would mm-hmm. build up an image. If you wanted to do inter- interferometry, interferometric <laughs> imaging like we do with, say, Merlin or the VLA or something, that's pretty difficult to do as an amateur, I think, largely because of the way in which you have to combine the signals, yeah. and that requires really accurate timing. Um, but perhaps not impossible and <laughs> certainly worth, worth looking into, but that would be, you know, at the extreme end. Brilliant. Cool. Um, the third question is from Phil Thomas. He asks, um, how do potential exoplanet researchers discriminate between a sunspot on the local star and an orbiting exoplanet? Yeah, okay. So this is, uh, an, again, a really good question. Um, this is about finding planets going around other stars and one of the one of the great techniques that's really probably the best example of which is the Kepler spacecraft at the moment. Um, but there's also some good ground-based 
work done with um, WASP or Super WASP, for example. Um, what you do is you look at a star, uh, you measure its brightness, keep measuring its brightness, and look for a dip as a planet that's orbiting that star goes round and passes in between us and the star. It blocks a little bit of the starlight. You see a dip in the brightness. Um, now, the chances of that happening are low because most planets probably wouldn't pass directly in front of their stars, for example. So what they actually do is they monitor many, many, many stars. I think in the case of Kepler, it's, uh, I think it's about 150,000. Yeah. Uh, maybe with, I think maybe more with Super Wasp. I have feeling it's more than that. But anyway, um, look those, look those projects up. So to see, a, to see that, you have to monitor lots of stars. And then every now and again, you'll see one of these dips. And the question was, how do you know it's a planet? How do you know it's not a sunspot on the star? Because a sunspot, obviously, big one, um, would be less bright than the rest of the star. So you would see the brightness dip as a sunspot sort of came into view. Yeah. And then it would go back up again as the sunspot perhaps went round onto the other side of the star as the star spun round. Well, there's a few ways you can tell the difference. Um, one is that, that when they look for these dips, they look for several of them. So, so they're looking for um, at least three, I, I think, of these dips um, separated by an exact period because the planet would orbit with a very particular period. And so you'd see a dip and then one dip doesn't tell you much really. Where you see another dip a little while later separated by, you know, if it was the Earth, separated by a year. Um, even that you wouldn't be sure about. Wait another year, you see the third dip, then you go, oh, hang on, there's something. These three dips look very, you know, look very similar. They're separated by this exact period. You're then pretty sure that's, there's a good chance that's a planet because a sunspot, basically sunspots come and go. Um, you know, you wouldn't get that exact period happening with a, with a given sunspot. Plus, um, the, 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 the dip that you see, will tend to be much shorter for a planet than it is for a sunspot. So the length of the dip. Now, the reason is, if you think about the sun, the sun spins with a period of about a month. So if you imagine a sunspot sort of rotating into view, it's going to pass across the front face of the sun in certainly a week, maybe up to two weeks, and then it disappears around the other side for a few weeks, and then if it lasted long enough, it might come round again. But typically, they come and go on shorter timescales, but it will be there on the face of the sun for at least a week. It's two weeks. So the dip would last for a week or two, whereas the planet dip only lasts for a few hours. And then I think probably the clincher really and, and the way they would, you know, we really get more information about these um, these planet transits is you've got this planet transit. It's a really good candidate. What you can then do is look at the star um, uh, with a spectrometer, get a spectrum of the star, and look for these um, Doppler shifts in the absorption lines of the star that tell you that the star is wobbling. Um, and that wobble is what's caused by the orbiting planet. And so that would be a real clincher for saying that that was a planet. So it is a good question, but there are ways yeah, very of distinguishing good question. Yeah, Cool. Brilliant. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, team, and thank you all for sending the questions. And please send us more questions by all the user routes. Thanks. Speak to you again next month. Thanks for that, Tim and Liz. Now, on to the feedback. We've had two pieces of post this time, which is really exciting. Um, first, we've had a postcard from Neil Hickling, who said uh, it's a postcard from Turkey, and he says that he's enjoying hot days and dark night skies there in Turkey. So I'm very jealous about that. And he says he's looking forward to the next podcast. 
I wish I was in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> and our other postcard has come from our own Jen. And she was at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and has sent us a shiny postcard with a disclaimer on it telling us that Pluto is no longer a classical planet. But Pluto is still on there. <laughs> it's a great postcard, though, because... It's a hologram, right? Yeah, it's a hologram. Yeah. So oh, wow. it's got the planets on it, and then you move it, and you can get to see their names and symbols alongside it as well. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Thank you, Jen. It's not cheating anymore because she's actually a listener now as well. It's not like <laughs> when members of the team just send postcards to each other. <laughs> And on the email, we've had a very nice message from Jane in Phoenix, Arizona, who says she's a long-time listener and went all the way back to the beginning to get all of the podcasts. And then she said lots of nice things about all the different bits of the show, which we all enjoyed. And she says she's going to send us some posts, but not just a postcard, apparently. Uh, it's a little bit cryptic, and we're wondering what it is. We're very looking forward to it. excited for this post. <laughs> <laughs> also, going back to the beginning is... A lot of effort. There are a lot of podcasts yeah. to listen to. That's a lot of time. So yeah, my hat comes off to you for listening to all of those. <laughs> That's pretty cool, right? You do see the whole evolution of the Jodcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right from the very beginning up until what it is now. Brilliant. Um, so on Facebook, we got a message. which was quite funny, by the way. Um, Miles Hendricks, he was on a trip over the weekend, and he played back the August show for a portion of a very long drive. And apparently he almost swallowed his chewing gum when he heard us mentioned a post that he left on our forum. So he just wanted to thank us for all the interesting space science. And he says, on. And thanks for all the forum posts and the tweets, retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us posts and the address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to Eddie Blackhurst and Joss Bland-Hawthorne for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith, Leo Huckbell, Tim O'Brien and Mark Perver. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time... Jot on. Bye. Bye.